Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. We're going to read together, and this is the word of the Lord. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. All right. So here we have this simple passage of Scripture. Luke is relating this facts, really, of of what's happened in this situation. We have Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue. There's a woman there. She's been disabled for 18 years. We see here that the disabling is attributed to a spirit, that it is an attack of Satan. Jesus heals her. The ruler of the synagogue is ticked off about it. And then we have these two parables that seem to be just arbitrary about the kingdom of God, but we know that they go with what just happened because of one word that Luke put in verse 18. What is the word, church? Therefore, thank you. Yes, good job. We know that these two things go together because Luke puts, therefore, in verse 18, he said, he said, therefore, which means everything that Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God and what he's trying to compare it to and relate it to here in verses 18 through 21 are related to what has happened in the following verses. So let me ask you a question from the Westminster Confession, uh, actually from the Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Anybody? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So when when we boil everything down to the, distill it down all the way to its core, everything that exists, exists for the glory of God and for His pleasure, and His pleasure is our pleasure. How cool is that? So everything in all of creation exists for the glory of God and for His pleasure, and God's pleasure is our pleasure. And so the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, that is regardless of circumstance. 
right? That's not the ideal. That is what we were made for. What we do exist for is for the glory of God. And not just us. I mean, that's the chief in demand, but can we just get real? Everything in creation exists for the glory of God. To proclaim His glory to anyone or anything that's listening, from the, the macrocosmic to the microorganism, God has created it all, and it all exists for His glory. I've, I've shared a couple of times how that's something that I'm trying to teach my kids on a daily basis right now. We have like this three-question catechism that they're going through. And the first question is, uh, who created you? God created me. Yes, that's right. And why? Uh, and what else did God create? What else did he make? Well, he made all things. That's right. And so the last question, the third question is, so why did God make you in all things? And the answer is, for his glory. And so that's what we're just trying to just cram in my kids. Don't, don't judge me. Yes, I am going to cram the goodness and the knowledge of God in my kids. Do they know what letters are for before you teach them the alphabet? No. Do they know what numbers are for before you teach them how to count? No. So don't you judge me for cramming Jesus into my kids, all right? And I won't judge you. No, I'm, I'm teasing you a little bit. You should be doing the same thing, all right? You should be doing absolutely the same thing. That is not forcing religion on your kids. That is pointing them to the God of all creation. And if we really believe that he is the God of all creation and that all things were made for his glory, including my sinner that need to become saint kids, then yes, I'm going to cram that stuff inside of them every single day. Amen. And so uh, I told you a funny story the other day. My son pushed his little, he has like this like mini lazy boy, like for little kids, you know, this little recliner chair. He pushed it up to the bookcase, tipped it over, and was using the chair to try and climb the bookcase to get to some uh, curios that we have from Africa that we have like chilling on top of the bookcase so that our kids can't play with them, right? Like that's the whole idea, why they're up in the air, and so my son, being the clever kid that he is, does that push, and I see him from across the room, and I'm like, son, son, Levi, Levi, Levi Maximus, son, and he's totally ignoring me, right? So then I'm like, okay, he's not responding to his name, so I'm at least going to try and like throw out, like, and I can't remember what, I was like, I can't remember, I was doing something, there was some reason why I was trying to unencumber myself so that I could get to him. I think I might have been holding my daughter Monique, but I'm trying, so I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to get her, put her down so I can get to him. And I'm like, son, is that what the chair is for? He's totally ignored. Is that what the chair is for, son? Son, what is the chair for? And he suddenly turns from the bookcase. He looks at me, eyes huge. He takes a flying leap off of the chair and he says, for his glory. Like, and, and I'm like, Yes, yes, Levi, that's right, it's, it, yes, for his glory, that's right, the chair is for his glory. All things are for his glory. Our pain, our pain is for the glory of God. Our suffering is for the glory of God. Our joy is for the glory of God, Amen. We all say amen to that one a lot quicker, right? So let's go back. Our, our pain 
is for the glory of God. Our suffering is for the glory of God. And there is something that God wants to bring out of our pain, out of our suffering, out of the circumstances of our life for his glory. And that's exactly what's going on here. Notice that the verse uh, in verses 18 through 21, Jesus, the first illustration he gives is the illustration of a seed. And remember that a seed is very obscure. It's just a hard-cased little piece of nothing that if you just leave it somewhere out on a windowsill or something, nothing is ever going to happen to that seed. It is just going to lay there dormant. But when you take this thing that's already obscure and you make its obscurity even more pronounced by placing it into the ground, that's when something happens, doesn't it? And that seed literally dies. There's nothing left of what was, but what comes out of that death and that burial is this resurrection of life out of that seed that you would never imagine could come from just a little tiny piece of wood. Right? Right? You guys tracking with me? So Johnny Appleseed gets his, his bag of apple seeds and journeys across the United States, planting little obscure apple seeds. And today, we can drink cider to the glory of God that comes from the trees that Johnny Appleseed planted. Right? Because, and I want you to hear this, the potential for the whole tree resides in a single seed. Right? The potential for the whole tree resides in a single seed. And from that tree, that tree then from one seed produces multiplied fruit. And in each fruit is multiplied seed. And so the potential for the whole is carried in the one. Amen? And so I want you to kind of see that. I want you to see that's kind of where Jesus is going with that. We're going to work through the text, and we'll talk about that a little more at the end, okay? And uh, it would greatly help uh, when you get up to speak in front of people if you put your notes in the right order, um, because you might start talking about things you shouldn't be talking about when you talk about them. Here we go. Verse 10. So real quickly, verses 10 through 13, we, Luke really does a great job. Remember, Luke is the good doctor. He's paying attention to detail and he's giving us details so that we can really begin to see this story unfold. And, and again, it's, it's more than a story, but it is a story, but it's more than a story because it's real, right? And so just real quickly, he takes us through verses 10 through 13. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. That's important. So he's there, he's present, he's welcome, he's teaching, and he's in the synagogue. And it is on what day? Sabbath. It's on Saturday. And so he's there on the Sabbath. There's a woman present with a disabling spirit. And it says here that she has been disabled for how long? 18 years. Remember, our pain, our suffering is for his glory. Amen? And here this woman is, and she has been suffering for 18 years. Now, I'm just going to be real with you. Just real. I, I don't know. I just really don't know if I had to suffer with a disabling spirit for 18 years, if I would have been there on that day. 
Like how many times has she come to synagogue? How many times has she searched the scriptures of the Torah? How many times has she gone to the ruler of the synagogue or the Pharisees in that area? Ask, is there anything that I can do? Is there not anything that can be done for me? How many times did she go to someone like Luke, a doctor, and say, is there not anything that can be done for me to relieve my pain and remove this suffering from me in 18 years how many times and I just just being real and honest with you like I know for sure in my own strength there's no way I'm there 18 years later at synagogue worshiping God in my own strength I'm just saying because I'm that selfish and sinful and broken and I hate pain that much and I hate suffering that much I just I just don't know But where is this woman 18 years into this thing? And where is she? She's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, sitting under the teaching of God's word, worshiping him for who he is in spite of her circumstances. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. It's incredible. Here she is worshiping God for who he is rather than what he has not done for her. Did you grab that? She is there 18 years into her suffering, worshiping God for who he is. Because at the very end of everything, who he is is enough for us to worship him. And she's worshiping him for who he is, not for what he has not done for her. Right? Somewhere in there, she understands that the chief end of her life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, in spite of circumstances, right? This isn't the, look, if everything's going well in your life, then, you know, you should at that time definitely be glorifying God and enjoying Him. No, 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 no. That's, that, that's like, duh, Right? It's not hard to glorify God and enjoy Him when everything is going well. The reason we have to remind ourselves of that truth is because of the opposite. That even when we are in the midst of circumstances that are hard and painful and difficult, when we're in the dark night of the soul, that is when we have to remind ourselves and remember, my life right now, the chief end of my life right now is to glorify God. And enjoy him somehow forever. And so here she is. And I want you to see something in verse 12. It's not her who goes to Jesus. Did you catch that? Here she is. The son of God is teaching in the synagogue. And it's not her going up to him after the the preaching and teaching and worship. Everything's done. So, you know, Pastor Jesus, um, you know, I was just hoping that maybe you could heal me right now um, since you're the son of God and everything. That's that's not what happened. That doesn't mean that that would have been wrong. It's just not what happened. Instead, what happens? Jesus goes to her. And this isn't the first time we see this in the book of Luke. It's certainly not the only time it happens in all of the Gospels. But constantly we see Jesus moved by compassion, going to someone, touching them, healing them, and ministering to them. And that's something that we need to remember, that in all this glorifying God and enjoying Him, that God's heart is for us and not against us. 
That Jesus' heart is toward us and not turned away from us. That his compassion is for us. And something that we've seen over and over and over again, that we've rejoiced in for over a year now. We've been in Luke for over a year now. We started last November. For over a year now, we have rejoiced in this truth that we've seen played out again and again and again. That Jesus is not only the one with the authority and the ability to do what needs to be done, but he's also the one with the affection and compassion to do what needs to be done, right? Because there's a difference between those three things, and when you find all three of those things in one place, that's when you're winning, right? Because there's, there can be the person who has the ability but not the authority to do what can help you. There's the person who has the authority but not the ability or there's a person who has the ability and authority, but they just don't give a flip about you. <laughs> and so without that compassion, without that affection turned towards you, even in that situation, someone with the authority and the ability still cannot be for you. But we find in Christ one who not only has the ability and the authority, but the affection and the compassion that is focused on his people. And that's amazing. And so Jesus takes the initiative. Now, now, catch this as well. He doesn't put his arm around her and take her into a corner quietly away from everyone else and, 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 and begin to minister to her in private. What does he do? He calls her out. I mean, here's this woman who's been battling this disabling spirit for 18 years. And you think that the thing that she wants to do when she walks into the synagogue on the Sabbath is to have her disability that she has to live with every day brought to the forefront of everybody's attention? No, I'm sure that she has taken great pains at trying to mask her disability as much as she possibly can. But what does Jesus do? He calls her out. He makes her disability public. He reveals it. And then in that moment, grab this, before he even touches her, pronounces her freedom from her disability. Like before he even lays hands on her, he says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Then he lays hands on her, right? Then he lays hands on her. You see, there is healing church. When God calls us out of our shameful obscurity. And it can come from many different places. And we're going to talk about that a little more in a little bit. But in this instance, we know because Jesus said that this suffering was a result of Satan. It was, it was actually a ploy, an attack of the enemy. And yet hear this, even in that, for God's glory. Praise God. <laughs> um, and so, yes, in a man, there, there is the attack of the enemy. And we're going to talk about what we should think about that here in just a little bit. There, there's also suffering and pain and circumstances that comes from sin in our lives. And even as the people of God, we are forgiven and made whole and complete in Jesus right now, past, present, and future. But we still live this life of struggling, wrestling, and trying to put sin to death in our flesh and in our daily lives. Why? Because sin kills and though we are in Christ and we will never taste hell, sin in our lives still kills and destroys and brings death to our natural lives. That's why John will say, rescue the brother from the flames, right? Not that they're going to hell, but that they're living in 
the destruction of sin. And so there is, there is suffering that comes from an attack of the enemy. There is suffering that we bring on ourselves through our sinful lives. There is suffering that comes through sorrow. Um, and then there's just plain suffering that's just suffering because this world is broken. And there is disease that's not necessarily attached to Satan personally at work and what's going on, but just because we live in bodies that are going to expire, right? And, and so all of these different things, and yet out of all of those things, God will at times call us out of what we're trying to hide in, right? It may be an attack of the enemy. It may be sin in your life. It may be sorrow and mourning. It may be just physical suffering that has nothing to do with sin in your life or Satan. And, and God will at times pull us out of where we're trying to hide in that thing because we're ashamed of it or because we're afraid of it. We're afraid that if, if people find out about this, they might really see us for who we are. And God, as Jesus shows us here, has this graceful compassion in revealing our disability, right? Because let's be real, where, where does that hiding come from? And we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Where we fashion for ourselves fig leaves to hide what we presume to be shamefulness for ourselves rather than being exposed and allowing God to cover us, right? Which is what God has done in Christ. And so for us, we will say at times that this needs to be a place where it's okay to not be okay, right? This needs to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. At the same time, we, we, we rejoice in this understanding that God's not going to leave us in that place. So it's okay to not be okay here, but it's not okay to stay there, right? But sometimes our track on getting out of that is different than other people. So we're not also going to sit there and go, well, brother, you've just been suffering for two weeks now, and you just need to get on, you know, get on. No, that's you saving yourself. That's ridiculous, what we'd rather need to do is come alongside each other and support each other in those things and encourage each other in those things and let God do the work of moving us and transferring us from the suffering into whatever victory he has for us. And, and sometimes that victory doesn't look the way that we think it ought to look, right? Sometimes victory is God transferring us from this life to the next one. Sometimes God's victory is healing. Sometimes God's victory is an inner healing and leaving you with your disability. But no matter what his track for you is, when that thing comes, when that victory comes, you're going to know it and you're going to rejoice and glorify God in the middle of it because you're going to know this was his plan. So let's move into verse 14. Uh, verse 13, she lay, he lays hands on her. She's made straight. Disability is gone. She glorifies God, right? Beautiful. Yes. Amen. Slow 80s clap. We're just like, wow, this is amazing. And then what happens? The ruler of the synagogue, right, becomes, the Bible says, indignant. He is indignant. He's not just miffed. He is ticked. He is ticked off. And what does he say? Now, now no, can, can we just, like... Look at the cowardice that Luke writes into this. He doesn't go to Jesus and, 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 and directly address 
Jesus and say, you shouldn't have done this. He doesn't go to the woman and say, you shouldn't have done this. He talks to everybody. He just makes this like broad sort of statement to everybody in cowardice. And what does he say? There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. What a punk. (laughs) Right? Like what a stinking punk. This guy. And here's the deal. He recognizes the healing. Come on those days and be healed. He recognizes that this woman was just healed right in front of his eyes. And he cannot give glory to God. He says, no, no, no. You shouldn't have done this. You should have come on a different day to be healed because, you know, <laughs> the doors are open on those days. He doesn't glorify God. Instead, he becomes angry. In church, this is what legalism does to us. Sometimes we can convince ourselves, and I, I've done this many times in my life, that if I can just... If I, you know, I'm going to make rules for my life. I'm going to, I'm going to get so like anal about my life and, 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 and what I can do, what I can't do, what I'm going to do. I, I have literally 19, 20 years old. I made, I lived by myself. I made rules for my house and posted them on my refrigerator about what time I was going to get up in the day, what music I couldn't, couldn't listen to and what time I could watch TV and not watch TV, like all that, by myself, I did that to myself, that is insanity, it is insanity, I did it, and I thought this was how I was going to remove distraction from my life, and keep myself from sin, and all these kind of things, can I tell you what it did for me, all it did was absolutely condemn me every time I did not hold up to those rules, right, (laughs) And so then I just lived in this perpetual wallow of just like misery and, and, and condemnation because I couldn't even keep the rules I made for myself, right? Here's the deal. Legalism is not the way to life. It's the way to death. Legalism is not the way to life. It's the way to death. There's no joy. And whatever worship we do out of legalism, we're doing because God commanded me to. And so even our worship in that moment is heartless. It's not stirred up with affection for the Lord. It's me trying to cover my butt. And that honestly is not even worship. It's idolatry. It's me worshiping myself and trying to cover my backside instead of worshiping God for who he is. The big difference between legalism and being, and, and, and hear this, there, there's a difference between legalism and being faithful to God's word, right? Like if God's word says this is what you need to do, you need to do it because that's what God's word said. But there's a difference between being faithful to God's word and living in legalism. And so here we see that in this, and this is what we need to grab, the ruler of the synagogue failed to answer the biggest question that the people in his day, in his job, were asking. Let's see if anyone knows. What's the one question Jesus got asked several times? Okay, different question. What's the greatest commandment? Different people came to Jesus and asked him at different times, what's the greatest commandment? Pharisees, lawyers, rulers of the synagogue. Because in first century Judea, this is the question that they were wrestling with. They had the Torah. 
And God had been silent for like 400 years. And so they were trying to say, okay, if we can distill the Torah all the way down and find the greatest commandment, what is the greatest commandment? And when they asked Jesus and Jesus answered, the answer that Jesus gave is one that they had already accepted. That if you distilled the law and the prophets down all the way to the very core, what you were left with was... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so Jesus would rightly say that the law and prophet hang on these two things. Now, I want you to see what's happening here. The ruler is failing to interpret the Torah correctly. He's failing to interpret the Torah correctly. Why? Because he has not rightly discerned the greatest command question. Jesus is about to make his disability public as well. Right? And what's the ruler's disability? He cares more about his animals than he does about his congregation. Because that's why Jesus said what he said. You hypocrites. Do not all of you, each of you, on the Sabbath day, untie, loose. And the word he uses there, loose, is the same word in the Greek that he used when he said, woman, you are freed from your disability. So he connects that it's, it's the same kind of loosing. And he says, you loose your animals so that they can go get a drink. Why not this daughter of Abraham? We're going to get to what all that means in a second. But Basically, Jesus is saying, you care more about the animals than you do about your congregation, which means what? He does not love his neighbor as himself, which means what? He has failed to discern the greatest command. He says, come back later. So here's the question. Was, was he going to heal her? Why don't you come back later? I'll be in the office at 9 o'clock in the morning. Oh, where have you been for the last 18 years? Right? The Son of God is standing in your midst. He's just unpacked the Word of God to you, and your heart is still so hard, and your affections are still so unstirred that when He heals someone in front of you, you cannot even glorify God, and you say people should come back later because you're going to heal them? Remember, just in the last chapter, Jesus said, you, you, you hypocrites, you, you can look at the sky at night and see the color of the sky and tell what the weather is going to be like tomorrow or see, oh, there's a south wind coming from over the Sahara, but it's going to get hot. But you, you cannot discern the times, Jesus said. In other words, you, you don't even know that the creator of the universe is standing in front of you and he says you stand condemned. And this ruler on this day stands condemned for the very same reason. He cannot discern the time. He does not realize that the Son of God is standing in front of him. He wasn't going to heal them. He did not have power to heal. But the healer is present. And can I tell you something? The time to come and be healed is when the healer is present. The time to come and be healed is when the healer is present. And the ruler fits Jesus' description from chapter 12. He could not discern the time, and he stood condemned in his disability. He had a disability, and his disability was that he could not rightly discern the law and the prophets. He loved his animals more than his congregation. 
You see, the ruler's bondage is worse than the woman's. Her body was bound, but his mind and heart were bound, and he was blind to it. And so at the end of the day, she is freed from her disability, but he remains in his. And her freedom brought her joy in this life, but his bondage was going to condemn him in the next life. And so there's vindication. Jesus says to them, hypocrites, pretenders, mask wearers, you loose, using again that same word in the Greek meaning freedom, you free your animals to get a drink on the Sabbath, something you will have to do over and over and over and over and over again. Every single Sabbath, you will have to go out and loose your animal just so that they can get a drink. But I have freed this woman for all time. And you do not rejoice when the Creator looses or frees one of His kids. You care more about animals than your neighbor, which means you've not kept the law and the prophets, which means you are condemned. In other words, you want the law? You can't handle the law. Right? You you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. And the truth is you cannot handle the law. And so look at verse 16. What does he say about her. He gives her an identity. What identity does he give her? He says, daughter of Abraham, the only person in the Bible that is given this title. Significant. Now, that doesn't mean that other people have the title. It's just the only one who's attributed that title in the Bible. And what is Jesus saying here? What is is he talking about when he says daughter of Abraham? It's similar to what he says in Luke 19 verse 9, which we'll get to maybe in a few months, um, when he talks to Zacchaeus and he says, this day salvation has come to this house. Right? This day salvation has come to this house. He is speaking to her spiritual identity. This is sola fide all over the place, right? Where the ruler was bound in his heart and mind and remained uh, under the law, and under the law he remained, this woman who had been afflicted for 18 years by Satan was transferred from being under the law to being under grace, and she was set free. You believe me? Go to Galatians chapter 3, and let's look at verses 23 through 29. So Paul writes about the law and about faith and about being the offspring of Abraham. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. This ruler, is he ruling over the law or is the law ruling over him? He is held captive by the law. And what does it say? Imprisoned. Until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by what? By faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian or a, a, a jailkeeper. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And hear this, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are 
What does it say? Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who calls them draws them. And I'm not going to miss one of my sheep. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I came for her. Why? Because she's mine. And this day, the seed of obscurity that was planted in the ground and lay dormant for 18 years, I'm going to bring life and resurrection out of that death. And yes, there was a temporal physical manifestation of that life that meant for the next however many years of this woman's life she didn't have to live bound by Satan, bound by this afflicting spirit and this disablement, which is awesome. But can, can I just get a witness? She did eventually die. The greatest freedom that Jesus brought to her on this day was to transfer her from being under the law to being under grace by faith in him. And that's where salvation comes. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. As revealed to us by scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. Amen? And so he says, daughter of Abraham, she's transferred. We see she's an heir according to the promise that was given to Abraham, which means she's no longer under the law, but rather under grace. And then it says in verse 17, I love this, all his adversaries were put to shame. (laughs) Namely, the ruler of the synagogue. When he found out that he really was just a steward, Of the synagogue. Because the real ruler was in the house. Amen? All his adversaries were put to shame. All the people rejoiced. Which is what? It's a foreshadowing of another day. Because there's another day coming, church, when Jesus Christ will be exalted. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. And God is going to draw all men to their knees. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Right? And there is that day coming. He will be exalted. And right now, He is reigning. Jesus is reigning now until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25. And the last enemy is death. Praise God. And so this is a foreshadow. And this little glimmer moment of rejoicing over this life and resurrection and freedom that Jesus brought to this woman with the disabled spirit is a, just a glimmer of a foreshadowing of what we are looking forward to in the day to come, right? And every time that we gather together on a Sunday morning, every time that we get to rejoice when God heals or saves or sanctifies or delivers or rescues someone, we get to rejoice in that moment. And when we do, even that is a glimmer of a foreshadowing of a foretaste of the day that will come when we are going to rejoice when God fully consummates and reconciles all of creation to himself. Amen? But let's just be real. 18 years is a long time to wait. It's a long time to wait. It's a long time to be afflicted. And maybe you are struggling in affliction today. And so I just want to give you a psalm to hang on to. And, and I don't know 
it doesn't say, and, and so we'll just speculate for fun, but maybe, just maybe, every week in and week out that this woman came to synagogue, it might be that this was the psalm that she was repeating over and over and over and over again as she waited on the Lord. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I I don't know, but I know she loved the Lord. I know that 18 years into her affliction she was still waiting, and I can't help but wonder if this was a psalm that she hung on to day in and day out. And if you are going through a dark night of the soul, through a season of affliction, and maybe it's been short, maybe it's been long, maybe that's a psalm that you need to meditate on, do whatever you need to do, write it down, put it in your pocket, put it on your mirror, tattoo it on your back, I don't know, but get to a place where, where you say, you know what, my life is for His glory in sorrow and in joy, and I'm going to wait on the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. So, so let's talk about this affliction real quick, and we're going to wrap up here. It says that Satan had afflicted her and bound her for 18 years, right? Like Jesus himself attributes this affliction to Satan. Now, that does not mean that every bodily affliction that we face is from Satan, Okay? Not every bodily affliction that we face is from Satan. Not every bad thing that happens in our life is from Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. Jesus is, or the Holy Spirit is. Satan is not, okay? And we probably give Satan way, way, way too much credit for the bad things that happen. Now, we live in a broken hurting, sinful world. And there are things that happen because we live in a broken, hurting, sinful world. Our bodies are expiring. They are expiring. They have an expiration date. They can only last so long. And yes, we have an adversary, an enemy, the devil, right? He goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But this is what you need to understand. He cannot devour God's kids, period. And there is nothing that Satan can do that God has not allowed. Nothing. Look at Job. Satan could not touch Job without God's go-ahead. And when God said it was done, it was done. When that time was accomplished, it was finished. Now, for some of you, that might be the scariest thing you've ever heard in your life. You mean that God would allow Satan to do? Yes, that's what I mean. But there is nothing that Satan can do unless God has allowed it. 
And there is nothing that will happen that is outside the realm of God's control. And at first, if that's the first time you've ever heard that, it might be frightening depending on what you've been taught your whole life. Can I tell you what's more frightening? Is an enemy that can just break in and do whatever the heck he wants whenever he wants. There's no purpose in that. There's no redemption in that. And it means that my God, who I've been serving and saying is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at once and is in control, is not actually in control. You know what that means? It means that God's a little bit smaller than I thought he was, which means he's actually worthy of a little bit less worship. But if I have a God who is absolutely 100% in control and the annoying neighborhood scoundrel of a dog can only get in the fence if God left the gate open and he only leaves it open if there's something he wants to do in that. And he's the one that can grab that mangy mutt and throw him out into outer darkness again. Then there's comfort and hope and rest in that. So meditate on that truth. And it will become one of the most comforting realities of your life. Satan gets way more credit than he should. And again, like I said, there is sin that affects us, sorrow that affects us, physical suffering that affects us, all from living in a broken, sinful, hurting world. And all of it can bow us down. Whether it is Satan attacking, or whether it is sin in our lives, or whether it's sorrow and mourning, or whether it is physical affliction, all of those things have the power to bring us to our knees. But when we are brought to our knees, church, that's where we should be the strongest. That's when we need to experience what Paul wrote about when Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so when we are brought low, let us lift our eyes high. Let us look to the one who can deliver. And Jesus is the one, regardless of what has bowed us down and with what, he is the one that can lift us up. So Jesus says, therefore, therefore, Jesus says these things. What is the kingdom of God like? We tend to view kingdom in terms of locality, right? As soon as I read this this week, and I, or this week, I, I immediately had, you know, uh, and forgive me, you know, Lion King in my head, right? And Mufasa is with Simba, and he's like, everywhere the light touches, you know, is, is my kingdom, you know, and don't go to that dark place over there. And, and we tend to think of the kingdom of God, we tend to think of kingdom in terms of locality, in terms of geography, where everywhere the light touches, that's God's, where the light doesn't touch, that's not God's. But both Jesus and Paul almost never speak about the kingdom in those terms. Rather, with Jesus and Paul, kingdom refers to the reign and rule of God. The saving, redeeming, sanctifying rule of God, the kingdom of God. And we see that the kingdom of God is broken into our world in Jesus Christ. The Messiah, the King, shows up and we see his rule and reign here in the healing of this woman. He is the ruler in this story, not the guy who's called the ruler of the synagogue, right? And what does the rule and reign of Christ always bring with it? Well, Paul says righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 4, 14 through 19. So through both Jesus and Paul's teaching in the New Testament, we find that the kingdom of God is an already not yet reality. 
The kingdom of God has already come in presence and power as Jesus showed up, but it's not yet fully consummated at the second coming. We, we're not there yet. It's already present here and now, and all who believe and are sons and daughters of God or heirs of promise according to Abraham, right, through faith in Jesus Christ, have presently been transferred from a domain or a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Amen? But are all things fully reconciled to God yet? No. And so we live in this already not yet tension, don't we? And so, but in the meantime, as we live in that tension, we get to experience the righteousness, peace, and joy of Christ in and through our daily lives, practically by the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that says inside of our hearts, that cries out, Abba, Father, is saying what? You are a citizen of another kingdom, right? Peter would say that, that we, we, we sojourn as aliens in this land, that we are citizens of another kingdom. And so practically every day, like sometimes maybe you have to pull out your passport and remind yourself what country you're from, right? Um, my wife is probably going to go through that here in a little bit. December 3rd, she takes her citizenship deal. She's going to get her passport. There's probably going to be these moments where she like holds up two different passports and like has to remind, okay, what, what am I? What am I, right? Like the Holy Spirit cries out inside of us that we are citizens. We are sojourners in this land. We are citizens of another kingdom. We've been transferred from a domain of darkness and into a kingdom of light, and we live in this already not yet tension. So kingdom doesn't mean realm. It means reign or rule. It's not castles and territory, but we see God's reign and rule through his people, through his subjects, God's people, his kids by faith. And so again, what do we see? We see here that he gives this woman a new identity. He tells her that she is a part of a new realm, right? which is a new rule. She's under a new ruler, and he, Christ, is reigning over her. And so he says that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, becomes a tree big enough to shelter the birds. He also says it's like leaven or yeast that was put in the dough. And so what's the point? What seemed to be so small and insignificant will prove to have been the beginning of the mighty kingdom of God. And as we said in the beginning, the potential for the whole is carried in one seed. Right? John 12, 24, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, the potential of the whole is carried in one seed. Namely, here, the seed is Christ. Right? I mean, the first seed is Christ. And he will fall to the ground, he will die, he will be buried, but it is Christ's death that is not the end, it is the beginning of our lives, right? 
Our lives spring from his death and his resurrection. And so his death is not the end. He's resurrected by the Spirit of God, and he will rise up out of the ground with the morning sun, and we who are to him more precious than sparrows or ravens, as he's been talking about in the last couple of chapters, will flock to make our home in him. Do you see the imagery there? Christ dying, being buried in the ground, rising with the morning sun. And we who are more precious to him than sparrows or ravens will flock to make our home in him. And he will produce many seeds. Why? Because he is a true and life-bearing tree. He is our tree of life. And he will produce many seeds. And in each seed is the potential For the whole. So hear this so that one believer may not remain alone for very long. Someone gets saved and and sometimes we can say, but they, they don't know, they don't know any other believers. How how are they gonna fellowship? What what happens? Well, remember this, church, that the potential of the whole is carried in one seed. And so one believer cannot remain alone for very long, right? Because As believers, we are disciples, and disciples do something. What do disciples do? They make other disciples. And seeds produce trees, which produce more fruit. And that fruit has many seeds, and each seed carries the potential of the whole. And so Jesus is planted. He raises the disciples are scattered out like seed that's been planted by the sower. And some fell in good soil, and some fell in bad. And God was God over it all. And those who needed to hear the word of God and be rescued and saved and delivered were. And the same seed was planted, rose up again, and it scattered more seed. And that's why we're here this morning. Because God scattered 12 seeds at the very beginning and 120 more and 500 after that and on and on it goes, right? And so this, the potential of the whole is carried in the one. And, and so as we, as we seek to do what God's called us to do here at Redemption Hill, that's something that we've talked about for two years now. And we've talked about going slow and, and being a crock pot instead of a microwave, as we've talked about humble beginnings and not despising starting small, but rather trusting God to build his church and trust that the gates of hell will not prevail, that he will advance, that he will multiply, that he will do it. One of the things that we have strongly believed is that the potential of the whole is carried in one. And so as we send you out, We send you out believing that through pain and suffering and joy and rejoicing, God is going to draw out of you, for his glory, life for the people around you. That you'll make disciples in your workplace and in your home. And that God will plant you, right? Jesus Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 at the beginning of his ministry, but he leaves off the last part. The planting of the Lord that they may be like oaks of righteousness planted along the water. We, we gather and we scatter trusting that God is planting us in different contexts and situations and places. In our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. So that he can raise up for himself a people that he has made for himself and for his glory and for his pleasure.
so that one believer may not remain alone for very long, but as he or she denies themselves and picks up their cross to follow Jesus and make disciples of friends, neighbors, and family. One become two, two become four, four become eight, eight become 16, 16 become 32, 32 become 64, ad infinitum. And so the rule and reign of Christ advances through his people, and we see the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or leaven that's been planted in some dough. Amen? Let us stand and pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've done through your word this morning. I thank you that in Hebrews we're reminded that your word is living and it's active, that it's able to pierce us and divide bone from marrow, soul from spirit. And God, I pray that that you will do a work by your word in us. I thank you that the only thing that will never return void is your word. And so, God, we submit ourselves to you this morning. For those, God, who are going through a dark night of the soul, afflicted, I pray, God, that they would cry out to you, that they would wait on you. But, God, I ask that you would come in your affection like you did for this woman and that, God, you would bring victory and glory out of their brokenness. God, if they're living in sin, I pray that, God, they would confess it openly to those that you have put around them to love them and support them and encourage them. God, if they are mourning secretly, God, I pray that they would open up about that and allow your people to mourn with them. God, if if they are suffering in their bodies, I pray they would be obedient to your word and call the elders together to lay hands on them and pray a prayer of faith that they may be well. And God, if there's anyone who's been afflicted by Satan, attacked by the enemy, God, I pray that you would crush the enemy on their behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.